Bruce, you and I met in Fresno more years ago, more decades ago than either of us probably want to admit. I first knew you from the band Common Ground. What did you do before that? Prior to that, I was uh, in a band as a teenager playing bass and singing in a kind of a surf James Brown R&B band called the Shandells, and we used to do little gigs at the Rainbow Ballroom. And then from there, when I was 16... I took over a guy's place in a band called the Roadrunners who had like a couple of number one singles in in the Valley and on KYNO AM radio. And they were on uh, Warner Reprise, which was Frank Sinatra's label. And I did that for about three years and then left with Bob Rains, who you played with, and, and went uh, up to the Bay Area for a while, then ended up back in Fresno, playing in Common Ground at, um, and that was with Victor Conti, my cousin, and Coleman Head. We brought back Lonnie Castile, and Norm Bellis at the time was the organist, and... Uh, let's see. Uh, and then we brought Freddie Roulette in there also later. Right. On Steel. And and that was, we worked at Eras for uh, about a year or two. And then you were there with Bob Rains at the right. time. That's where you and I met. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I, I went back to Chicago uh to try something out there and I Freddie went back with me for a while. We ended up in Denver and we U-turned back and went a few weeks later and uh, I ended up going and starting a band in uh, near Omaha, Nebraska with this guy that I had met at Eras, this drummer named Red and and he his his wife sang with the Platters later uh, Lita Fonza, and then that didn't work out. And he says, "Well, the Loading Zone is looking for a right. guitar player." Right. With uh, and so I Linda. went there. Linda Tillery and Tom Coster, bass player Dougie Roush, and drummer Tony Smith later that went with uh, uh, Jeff Beck and Jan Hammer, mm-hmm. and. I got that gig and we were in a, we had a rehearsal hall in Berkeley at a, uh, an old church called at San Pablo and Chaucer and the Tower of Power rehearsed on one half of it and we had the other half. And so I used to run into them and write songs with them and uh, we did a lot of opening act stuff, and sometimes we opened for the tower in the, when I was in the loading zone. Then uh, loading zone members Doug Roush, Tom Coster went with Gabor Zabo, and then from there they went to Santana. So we kept reforming the loading zone, and then one day in September of 1972, they called and Lenny Pickett the sax player and myself were both in the loading zone at that time with uh, 
drummer Mike Clark and Paul Jackson on bass, who was later with Herbie Hancock. And that was the last version of the Loading Zone. Did so Loading Zone do any recording? They did before me, but uh, we just did a few little things, and I don't have any of the any of that music recorded with a loading zone for some reason i don't know where those uh they were be, they would have been on cassette tapes now but i i lost all that stuff when i moved a few years ago and then uh when i got with tower of power um i re- uh we actually you were still playing with uh, Sugarcane Harris, right? Prior to right. that, but I I did a gig, but you weren't there. Somewhere in the Midwest, where Sugarcane opened up for Tower, and then so you know we we had a we were with Warner Brothers in the when I first got with Tower of Power, and we had. Uh, a record. My first record was called "Called the Tower of Power" and had the song "What Is Hip" and "So Very Hard to Go," which were the two singles off there. And so we did a bunch of like live of Soul Train. That's all on YouTube now, and a mm-hmm. um, bunch of TV shows. Don Kirshner's rock concert, and we we did pretty good because we crossed over to the uh, you know we were on white charts and black charts, so it was like kind of a crossover style R&B and it brought, it brought the Oakland sound uh, to a big a much larger audience because uh, before then it was all the James Brown thing that that a few pe- white people loved you know there were there was a contingent of that but I think Tower was one of the big crossover acts maybe Cold Blood too a little bit yeah Cold Blood was also remember them by the way wow and- yeah, in fact, um, in 1980, I actually played with Lydia for, for about a year and a half. I, I did, um, Tom Coster played keyboards, Harvey Hughes, one of the Cold Blood drummers, and a bass player named Bobby Vega. We had a quartet behind Lydia. And that was after the Jump Street band that we had. We did that band with, uh, after Tower of Power, uh, we went through, Tower of Power went through, let's see, it was Tower of Power, Back to Oakland, Urban Renewal, uh, Drop It in the Slot, and Live in a Living Color. So there was five albums there, vinyl albums, and mm-hmm. on Warner Brothers. And then we went to Columbia and did... Ain't Nothing Stopping Us Now, and then Victor came in the band, we did one album with him called We Came to Play. Yep, very famous. And then, and we did, um, uh, Gavin Christopher was on the record label Kurtom, which was Curtis Mayfield's label. And we recorded, Tower of Power recorded on his album in, when we were in Chicago. And that's how we met him. So after the after uh, Victor and I weren't in Tower of Power anymore, we went uh, and started that band uh, 
with Gavin. And then Coleman was in it. And we ended up making a, uh, an album that was a nice album. But we, uh, Gavin was still under contract to Kurtom and we couldn't put it out. So it kind of folded that and we tried to get it some different singers but we could he was a really exceptional singer yeah. and nat natural performer so it was we couldn't find anybody to replace him really and we had David Rubinson was our manager and he was also Herbie Hancock's manager and that kind of put an end to that because the part of the band Victor and Nate Ginsburg who was the keyboard player went with, on a tour with uh, Herbie Hancock Monster and then Man. I went with Lydia yeah and I went with Lydia uh, from Cold Blood and then we tried to do a few gigs we got Ronnie Beck on drums and tried to put uh, Jump Street back together but we could never get it going again and then you know along the way we kept making recordings, which I still have all that stuff from uh, Victor's Oasis band and with Jimmy Walker. I have all the all these tapes that nobody has, and then I converted them over to CD anyway. So I have I have documentation of that. And then after those bands, um, I started. Uh, I got a a, a gig at a local nightclub in, in the Bay Area called Frenchies. I get this four night a week house gig and the owner of the Frenchies at that time had a studio. So I did a couple albums with that band and then we started getting into the Las Vegas Hilton hotel scene. And at that time, the, the best money you could make uh, in the club circuit was in uh, in those casino lounges, yep. so the band could make about five grand a week, uh, compared to the Red Lions, which were about twenty three hundred, and you know they still had the Holiday Inn circuit. There was a Sheraton and uh, Black Angus. There was a lot of six night a week club gigs available then, mm -hmm. which aren't anymore. You know. Things are uh, the gig situation has kind of changed in in the uh, in the hotel circuit, I call it. But anyway, those casino gigs, I stayed in there, and then what happens in that circuit is you you, you they're kind of like sit down gigs. Some some places I ended you know I ended up moving to Reno for about a year and working in the pepper mill up there with Roger Smith, the keyboard player who's now with Tower of Power, and uh, this soul singer uh, from uh, Detroit named uh, Tommy Bell, and then his brother, the drummer from Stan Kenton. And we had this little lounge uh, graveyard shift band. It was, it was a fun band, and I lived right in the hotel, and just, you know, it's kind of an easy gig because you just come downstairs and then you eat there and you just live there. And I still all along would, you know, was always writing songs here and there. And then 
So I, I was in 1988, I was in uh, Las Vegas. I had moved there to join this group called Santa Fe. And they were like a, a really uh, well-known local band that worked like 50 weeks a year in that circuit. So I did it for about a year and I sold my house that I had in the Bay Area and I thought, well, I'm just going to move to Los Angeles and try that. And I went there and it was, you know, I worked in a bowling alley on a, on a, for 60 bucks a night on the, on the weekends with a drummer from uh, Tierra, which was a Mexican soul band. And then the leader of the uh band El Chicano, which was kind of like an, an L.A. version of Santana mm-hmm. that had a few hit, hit records out right. in the 70s. I ended up doing that gig. And then in Los Angeles at that time, you, you know, you worked, you just did everything that you could do just to stay afloat, you know. And they most of the gigs were what I call the vertical, you know, you got every Tuesday over here and you every Saturday there, you know, kind of like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I was there from 88 to 2000. And then I was traveling a lot at that time with Al McKay. I think we went to Europe maybe 40 times in one year, but we used to, he could only play because of the uh, conflict with the name. He had to call it the Earth, Wind, and Fire Experience. And then on the billboard, it would be the, you know, the Earth, Wind, and Fire would be about three feet high, and then the experience would be about an inch high, you know. <laughs> So he was always getting all these cease and desist from the from Maurice White's publicist, and 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 at that time, they they were playing the tracks, you know. And then Al McKay had all these. He was a really good musical band leader, so he got he got all these good rhythm players and singers, and and the music was really top notch. In fact, there's a bunch of videos of that stuff floating around on YouTube, one called um, Al McKay Review in Lithuania. And then that's a live TV show that I did with him. And it, it's, you know, it's good. So that happened. And, um, and then I took that trip over here. And little by little, I started, um, you know, liking it over here. And so eventually I just decided, you know, I'm just going to stay here because it's a lot cheaper to live. And at that time, my motto was was kind of escalating to the point of like, okay, if it's fun, that's where I want to be. Right. You know, so I thought, okay, that's the quest, you know, to get more famous. It's that's not going to help me, you know, or to get, you know, the after a certain amount of money, you know, to me, I like money, but it's it's only good for 
you know, to pay your rent, buy food, buy uh, medicine if you need that. And, and then uh, I'm no happier in a gigantic house than I am in a Motel 6 size room, which I live in now. So as long as everything works, as long as I have some good guitars and uh, now I'm somewhat adept on a computer and, you know, which is uh, enough to to email and, you know, participate in it a little bit. So that, that keeps me kind of tied into the outside world. And then I've already made six solo CDs and I had a couple of independent record contracts that were basically just buyouts because I had already made the record on my own. Mm -hmm. And then once I got the deals, uh, a couple of them actually never gave me any accounting and and just, just basically stole the records and never paid me a dime. But one, I did, I got 10 grand up front and I looked at that as a buyout. And then I've, when I was working a lot of uh, gigs and um, and then on those, uh, the last run in Vegas that I did, I, I knew the entertainment director at the Orleans Hotel and they had the Orleans, the Gold Coast and the Sun Coast. There was three properties. And he was a trumpet player that I had played with before. And I met him when El Chicano played at the in the big showroom there. And so he gave me a, a you know about seventeen weeks a year in that circuit. So I used to go there. And then I worked every Sunday with a a singer named O.C. Smith that had some hits out in the '60s, like uh, "God Didn't Make the Little Green Apples" and uh, Henry Hollis Tramp. He he was a he also sang with Count Basie, but he was a science of mind minister, which is uh, not Scientology, but it's you know Victor turned me on to that stuff years ago. It's oh, really? basically positive mindset and positive affirmation type of uh, life healing stuff, you know. So I kind of got into that, and that that really helped me to stay out of stress and, and, and stay positive no matter what conditions came my way. So that was a big gift. And, you know, it's basically just inventory of your thinking and so that you can keep emotionally stable. And pretty much, you know, I had always been able to take care of myself financially, you know, n- not uh, not mega rich or anything, but just, you know, I, I always could, I always had more than I needed. So that's how I kind of viewed myself. And, um, you know, I had some low lows along the ways in the, in the early part that it seemed like the more successful I was in the, earlier in my career, the the more messed up I got. And then as I kind of started coming out of that and, um, but I always did provide work for other people. I didn't kind of wait for the phone to ring, you know, I just kind of did my best to do that. And so it's, you know, I'm still 
still hanging in, still recording music, still playing, and uh, I'm just kind of uh, at this point in my life, I'm I'm kicking way back and just enjoying it. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. I want to ask you a couple of musical questions now. The first one would be okay. because, because you're talking about money, and I agree. There are moments in your life, like when you're playing and you're enjoying it, uh, as opposed to say when you're on some kind of meat and potatoes gig where you need you're playing music, you're on a stage, you're in a hotel or whatever. But it isn't that it isn't fun. It's pretty routine, and maybe the singer. Uh, if you're working for somebody, you just playing a part, and they they don't let you stretch out too much or whatever. So you know, yeah. compared to making money. Uh, you and I share this. I mean, all musicians do that. You're up on the stage when you're having a good time and you like everybody and everything's going well with the group, whether it's a trio, duo, trio, or uh, you know, Tower of Power with however many people that was. That's a great moment. And I wanted to ask you, what were some of those best moments? Was Tower involved in that, or was it something like uh, Jump Street, which, by the way, was an excellent band? I've got some cassettes of that or had somewhere along the line. And those groups that you're talking about that weren't as well known, I mean, smoking stuff. What were some of your favorite moments live uh, on stage with these bands? Which bands? Okay, um, the beginning of Power of Power, when I first joined for the first couple of years, what, the, what you're talking about is the way I refer to it in my life is I, I refer to that as magic. Mm -hmm. So whenever I have magic in my life, uh, that's when you see smiles going across the stage and then you have to kind of look at your watch and go, wow, it's all, the gig's almost over. Yeah. I wish, you know, I wish we could play longer. And then, so, Tower of Power in the beginning was uh, magical. Uh, Jump Street in the beginning was magical. Wherever, the, wherever there was high creativity and not band politics, you know, uh, getting in the way, and then I I had a band the the band that I took to Vegas. Wherever I was the band leader, later because I I started using the Bruce Conti band, and then I would get to hire the rhythm section. And to me, the drummer is the most important guy in the band. And so I I got to work with all these just really great drummers and bass players and that would lock up with me and and that was once once you you know you have you have that feeling and that groove among the players and they listen and they have dynamics and then one thing that I did do even when I played cover music in my own bands I I allowed myself to stretch and I allowed everyone else to stretch so um, I liked I pretty much you know, uh, as long as I was in a band with a good rhythm section and uh, where the personalities gel too, I, I had this guy named Les Falconer who's now playing with uh, Robert Cray. He was my roommate for a long time and he played drums with me on several of my albums uh, or my CDs. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was just a, a great, a great individual, and a, and just a magical player, you know, that always played the the perfect thing all the time. You never had to, 
even think about it. It was like you were just having a you were having fun all the time with him. Yeah, that's so that's fantastic. Yeah, that that does it for me. When I get a good rhythm section, then it's like, okay, you know, now 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 let's just get a gig. Right. Who are who do you listen to now, and who are your favorite? I don't want to say influences, but if you have influences, you could talk about that. But otherwise, what kind of things do you listen to, or have you listened to over the years that you love? Okay, um, I always was a fan of James Brown, and back in the early days when uh, he had Maceo with him and uh, Melvin Parker and uh, Clyde Stubblefield and those drummers. Um, then I, I, I always liked George Benson, uh, and then I, I became a fan of all the CTI records that were out with Freddie Hubbard, Herbie Hancock, and, um, and some John Coltrane records. I loved Albert King. I listened to, uh, uh, now I'm going back and listening to some stuff that I did. I listened and liked. I actually learned some Jimi Hendrix tunes that I liked a, a long time ago. I never got to play. I loved Stevie Wonder, Donny Hathaway, Rance Allen. Um, you know all the Motown stuff, the Stack stuff, Atlantic. You know, I, I just. Uh, I even uh, now have listened to Led Zeppelin in a different way than, you know, I wasn't a real rock fan a long right, time ago, but now I'm starting to understand that those guys, they were doing some, you know, uh, innovative stuff. And then Cream also, I liked Cream back in the day too, but, you know, it's listening to stuff like uh, the song White Room and, you know, the uh, those Disraeli Gears albums and yeah. you know that that's was the compositions and the uh, and then the Stevie Wonder compositions and stuff just still to this day um, love it you know yeah well Stevie Wonder's a phenomenon musically I mean he's he's amazing I didn't know this but he played I didn't realize he played uh, um, I was gonna say played piano but everybody knows he did but he uh, saw it. there's a thing on YouTube of him playing giant steps. I was really surprised to see that. Coltrane's huh. giant steps, yeah. There's also yeah, video, I did. There's also a video of a young woman singing the entire Coltrane solo. <laughs> you should look that up if you haven't seen it. It's pretty mind blowing. The anyway, giant steps. Yeah, and I mean she's got it down. She sings it with the record. And she's got she got every note by heart. Amazing, huh? I could yeah. never play Giant Steps. I don't know. Have you ever tried? I can't even play the chords to it fast enough. No, I, you know, I kind of um, just listen. Chester Thompson, used, he came out of that jazz trio thing. Okay. And I used to listen to him play that stuff in Tower of Power rehearsals. And, and um, right. it always, you know, it always amazed me to, to be able to play changes like that. I could play through changes, but... That's a difficult song. Yeah, that's a. You have to study that to play and that. Tempo too. By the way, Nate Ginsburg, yeah. man, I, Nate's one of my favorite keyboard players. He's he's fantastic. Yeah, he really uh, 
just kept on getting better and better all the time. We we made a record called Live at Shaver Lake uh, with Nate's on that, and that drummer Les Faulkner and uh, Billy Haynes, this bass player, and it just it was just on fire. Yeah, he's very cool. Have you run into? You must know Louis Pardini, right? You yeah, Louis Fresno. Have you run into him because he went from almost nothing to I mean he was always a good player but then he moved on to LA and I think you might have been in LA when he was there maybe you played with him even but he then went yeah, on we to do a lot of stuff as you know yeah he well he's in Chicago now he took Bill Champlin's know, place but yeah he was in this band called Koinonia with the bass player Abe Laboreal and this guy named Don Maxwell who was mm-hmm. a drummer and they they uh they did a lot of uh, uh, movie soundtrack music, mm-hmm. and him, him and I played a few club gigs together, and then uh, actually, he uh, he worked with Victor in that Oasis band, that, right. and and they stayed up at my. They ended up coming up and living at my house in El Sobrante in, in the Bay Area, and then that at that time I moved in with my girlfriend who later became my wife and uh, that was before he went to LA but when when he got in LA uh, he started uh, singing and he became a really really strong singer yeah, too that's what I heard he was always, yeah he was always really a good keyboard player I met him at you know in Fresno Sid Shamshoyan took me over to his house one time and I think his father was a doctor. You know, he was came from a wealthy background, but he had been to Berkeley School of Music when he was like sixteen oh, years old or something. Yeah, he he had a he he had a legitimate background. In in Los Angeles, it was if you could read, it was a big plus. You know, absolutely. And by the way, the reason I even mention him, of course, Fresno, and, and I knew you knew him, but also because Downbeat Magazine published the transcription of the Giant Step solo. So one day I had that, and I was talking to him, and I said, uh, uh, how well do you read? He said, I can read pretty well. So he, I said, can you read this? I just wanted to, st- it wasn't like a test or anything. I just wanted to hear somebody do it. And he, I set the music down, and he played through it. I mean, he didn't play the whole solo. He played, started it, and it was obvious that he had no trouble with it. So, yeah, really yeah. talented guy. Who else came out of Fresno? You can, can you think of anybody else who's made it big like you guys, you, Victor? Well, there was there was a, um, a, a guys that came out uh, ahead of us named Pat and Lolly Vegas. Oh, yeah. And they had a band called Redbone. And uh, they went down to L.A. At that time, from Fresno, you either went to the Bay Area or you went to L.A. That was the two avenues, you know. Right. To, and when I went to the Bay Area, they were having that Summer of Love kind of Fillmore thing. And so it was a, a real innovative mix of, you know, like jazz musicians and R&B and blues and rock, all different stuff, you know. And then L.A. had stuff like, you know, now uh, like The Doors and Steppenwolf and that ended up there, Turtles and... There was all kinds of interesting, unique-sounding bands. Arthur Lee and Love, and right. yeah, they were just uh, they they allowed the bands to 
be self-produced and write all their own material. And, and a lot of the A&R people and producers were musicians then. So they, uh, you know, they weren't trying to clone everybody or, or like, Hey, I need a record that sounds like this. So that's why there's so much magical, unique sounding groups coming out of that era, you know? And there really is. You mentioned, you mentioned, um, love and spoonful, um, and if you go back and listen to those, speaking of songwriting, um, I already forgot the John, not John Stewart, John, uh, I don't know, whoever the, that guy was, and the Turtles. Now, you mentioned the Turtles, in fact. I was thinking yeah. about that. But the Turtles also, uh, Floyd and Eddie, right? Those two guys, whoever, whatever Floyd. their names are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the songs, I mean, if you think back the superficially, it's like you and me, da da da, da and you think, well, yeah, that's pop. But if you listen to the construction of the tunes, actually, they're pretty brilliant. Yeah. Like you said, originality was a thing then. Now it's more cookie cutter. Give me something that sounds like Britney Spears uh, mixed with, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean, yeah. Miley Cyrus or something. And it's all visual, right. too, which, for better or worse. I want to ask you what, kind, what you're playing these days. Are you still a Les Paul guy? Well, I, I have a Les Paul that I've... Uh, but I... That you bought from me? I wish I had that guitar back. It's still only twenty five bucks, by the way. I didn't want to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Bruce. What are you what are you playing now? Um, I have a Paul Reed Smith. They're single cutaways. They're like a they're just a basically a Les Paul, but it's their version of a Les Paul, you know. And they're a little bit lighter than a Les Paul. Yeah, that's usually heavy with Les Paul. Yeah, you know that um Speaking of that guitar, I thought I paid you two hundred. Did I pay you two hundred bucks for that guitar? Some ridiculously low. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but in those days they were like, that's what they were going for. Yeah. I remember when I bought my '57 Gold Top. I bought it in Alex's Music on 48th and in New York, uh -huh. and I thought, and it was, and I paid nine hundred dollars for it, and I was like, I go, wow, this is really a high price, but I liked it. I, I traded in a 1968 Les Paul that I had bought in Berkeley, and then I gave them that and 1300, and I got a 59 Strat and um, uh, that 57 Gold Top. Mm -hmm. So with your guitar, the guitar I got from you, I played that all through the loading zone, but they didn't have those slip-on Glen Kwan style bridges where you. Mm -hmm. They, it just had a tailpiece and the strings ran over the top of it. And, uh, so I had ground down a tunematic because the angle of the neck wouldn't really allow you to get a tunematic bridge on that particular model. I think it was a 52, the one that I got from you. Mm -hmm. And yeah, yeah. and then they, they did all kinds of crap carved out the top. And you know, I mean, at that time they, you could, they were just starting to get popular. And I think the only reason why I got one is because Mike Bloomfield was playing it. And I liked the sound of it. Yeah. And Clapton was playing one. And then I ended up with an SG Les Paul II, one of those 61s. Mm -hmm. But yeah, guitars in those days, you could, you could buy nice ones for, you know, three to five hundred dollars. Right. I remember. We need to talk about what you have something out that people can purchase. BruceConti.com. 
and that's B-R-U-C-E-C-O-N-T-E dot com. I have all my solo albums, and I have the newest one that's on there. They can just click and go to the store and then buy them with PayPal. 